Let us go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, you are the one who is holy and good. It is your goodness, it is your love which shows us what love is. Lord, we fall so far short of what you have called us to be. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word and stir our hearts. Stir our hearts that we would not want to just simply remain as we are, but that we would long with Holy Spirit-filled intensity to be more and more what you have called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we continue in Luke, we're in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. In the last few weeks, we have seen that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to accomplish the exodus. In the preceding sections, he has been doing ministry and involving his disciples in that ministry. He's been sending them out, granting them authority, and having them proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. This message is one that brings division. There are those who will joyfully accept the message of the kingdom, who will go on to eternal life, then there are those who will reject this message. Now their rejection doesn't nullify or slow down the coming of the kingdom of heaven in any way. Even in rejection, the disciples were to say as they left their rejecting village, the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus tells his disciples not to rejoice in power to cast out demons, but that their names are written in heaven. What a glorious thought. Jesus divides the world into two clear groups. Those who welcome the coming of the king and his reign and those who reject it. Rejection is a difficult thing for most of us to deal with. Who wants to be rejected? Who wants to be disrespected? But we saw even last week that Jesus has a very different reaction to rejection. He rejoices. The truth of the kingdom of God had been hidden from the so-called wise and understanding people. Their earthly wisdom, power, and pride usually opens doors and opportunities for them. But in this case, they cannot see the glorious truth staring them in the face. The world is clearly divided into those who welcome the kingdom and those who reject it. Another way of saying that is that there are those who see and those who are blind. Let's read today's passage in Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, 
a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So from this passage, as we're talking about those who see and those who don't see, Jesus does at least three things to help us see how we are to genuinely love our neighbor. The first thing that Jesus does is he confronts self-righteousness. In verse 25, we see the lawyer stood up to put him to the test. A lawyer, a scribe, is someone who knows the law very, very well. He studied it in depth and is looked to as an authority on issues of the law. His purpose in speaking to Jesus the promised one, the one who created the universe, the one who kings and prophets long to see firsthand. The purpose of this man is to put Jesus to the test. You see, he sees Jesus as a teacher to be tested rather than the Lord, the long-awaited Messiah to follow and learn from. Though the eternal Son of God was in his presence, this man could not see Jesus for who he truly was. So this man stands and asks his question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus knows exactly what the man is doing. He's not taken off guard. He's not surprised. He always knows just what to say. Isn't that amazing? He always knew just the perfect thing to say. So in verse 26, Jesus says to him, 
what is written in the law? How do you read it? See, the lawyer may have thought that Jesus was going to slip up, maybe give some novel answer on the way to eternal life. But Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus responds to the man's question with a couple of questions of his own. His questions turn the man's attention to God's word. See, the law revealed God's character and what God required of his people to be in covenant with him. God's word explains what it means to follow God. This is a good reminder for us too. When we have questions about how we should behave, what we should value, we should always be looking to God's word. I think about what Pastor Adams said maybe about a month ago, six weeks ago or so. He said, what are things that God loves that I'm tempted to hate? And what are things that God hates that I'm tempted to love? It's those sort of probing things where we're looking to God's word that helps give clarity on what we should be thinking about. Now, Jesus also knows, obviously, what the law says. And he knows also what the lawyer, that the lawyer knows the law very well. In verse 27, we see this lawyer's answer. That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Deuteronomy 6.4 is referred to by the Jewish people as the Shema. Shema means to hear. They are called to hear, to listen, that God is one. So you are to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's what they are to hear and to pay attention to. The only appropriate response to the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, the God who brought Israel out of bondage in Egypt, who was faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who brought them into a land of their own. The only appropriate response is to love him with all of your being. No part of your person is left out of this command. This is the command to not only give yourself to God in devotion, as you would a mere earthly king or to a supervisor, but this is a call to love him. This is talking about your affections. And not only to love him, but to love him totally and intensely. When the lawyer, going back to Luke, when the lawyer quotes, love your neighbor as yourself, he's referencing Leviticus 19.18. Now Leviticus 19, the first two verses, starts with God telling Moses to tell Israel, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. It's important for God's people, his representatives, 
to have the sort of character that is all based upon God's character. God is holy, therefore he has called us to be holy. Jesus, the perfect, holy, and eternal Son of God, was the ultimate example of this. And he said, I only do what the Father does. God's character is the foundation for all of what we're called to think and to do. Whether it's honoring parents, not worshiping idols, or offering proper sacrifices in the Old Covenant, all of those things reflected this reality. Now, further down in Leviticus 19, starting in verse 9, we see more about God's requirement for how his people were to treat others. So starting in verse 9 in Leviticus 19, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block behind the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor." You shall not go around as a slander among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So some of the ways that Israel was to love their neighbor as themselves was very much fleshed out in this passage. They were to intentionally leave some crops for poor people and foreigners. They were not to steal or deal falsely. They were not to swear by God's name falsely. They were not to oppress or rob their neighbor They were to pay workers promptly. They were to look out for the blind and deaf instead of looking to make fun of them or to harm them. They were to deal justly in the courts, being unbiased regardless if the person is poor or rich. They were not to hate their brother or take vengeance. So you see, loving neighbor was not left as a kind of vague platitude in this passage in Leviticus. God made it very tangible, concrete, and practical. These laws were for the nation as a whole, yes, but they also filtered down to the actions of every member, young and old, in the community. So back in our passage in Luke, 
Jesus responds to the lawyer's answer in Luke 10, 28. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The lawyer knew the law very well. He was able to answer correctly. He gave the same answer that Jesus gave in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. In that passage, once again, another lawyer was testing Jesus and asking what was the greatest commandment. And Jesus didn't just give one. He couldn't. He said, loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul was the greatest commandment. And loving your neighbor as yourself was like it. He went on to say that all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, back in our passage in Luke, there is a problem with the lawyer's answer. And the problem is its implications as Jesus says, do this and you will live or do this and you will have eternal life. The man started out trying to put Jesus to the test to show that Jesus was a false messiah, someone unworthy to be followed, someone who didn't know God's word. But now the man who was trying to test Jesus feels that he is on trial when Jesus said, do this and you'll live. See, it's one thing to know what the Bible says about something. And it's a completely different thing to love what the Bible says and to long to do it. The man asked how to inherit eternal life. Jesus said, yes, love God totally with all of your being, with all of your energy, and love your neighbor as yourself, and then you'll have eternal life. The man goes from being on offense, so to speak, by testing Jesus, to being on defense. He feels attacked, inadequate, and guilty. God's word is meant to do that. The Holy Spirit uses God's word in each person's God-given sense of right and wrong to convict the world of sin. See, when we come face to face with God's holy standard, his unapproachably high standard, it's so clear that we don't measure up. The lawyer felt some of that. How do I know he felt that? Because in verse 29, we see he was desiring to justify himself with his response and who is my neighbor. The man felt he could not meet this incredible standard in the law. So he wanted Jesus to co-sign a more manageable scope of the command to love neighbor. It's important to see that once again, the man is not asking Jesus out of a sincere desire to know the best way to apply the passage so he could be more faithful and fruitful. That's what a Christian would do, right? That's what uh, someone who follows God would do. No, that's not what the man was doing. The passage in Leviticus shows very well what it means to love neighbor and who your neighbor is. Remember in Leviticus, it told them how they were to treat all sorts of people. Just people that they interact with, people who work for them, people in court, deaf, blind people they came across, people they did business with, whether as customers or as sellers. 
and even people who they may have never met or would ever meet personally, like the poor or foreigners who would just get food from their field. If they were to be holy as God was holy, they would have to be a loving, just, and have a sacrificial posture towards anyone and everyone whom they could come in contact with. It's interesting that the man doesn't bring up anything about loving God with his whole being. The man, may, this lawyer may not have felt he needed to justify himself about loving God because it's harder to quantify loving God. But consistently in the scripture, we're called to look at how we treat other people as an indicator of our love for God. The two are inextricably linked together. Those who truly love God will love their neighbor. And as we see in 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. God's love transforms our cold, selfish, idolatrous hearts to be sensitive and to love him back and overflow in love to other people. Now the passage in John is talking about loving your brother. So we may be tempted to limit this necessary gospel-reflecting love only to fellow Christians. As if perhaps the transforming power of the Holy Spirit only transforms our love towards Christians. The question is, does our love or lack thereof for people who don't follow Christ, does that say anything about our relationship with God? Only if Jesus could clarify for us who we are called to love. And thankfully, in his glorious way, he does just that through the rest of the passage. This leads to our second point. In this passage, Jesus reveals the bankruptcy of a loveless faith. We see that in verses 29 through the first part of verse 37. Jesus responds to the lawyer's question with a parable, which is a story that was meant to illustrate something of the kingdom of God. The parable of the Good Samaritan is probably the most well-known parable and may very well be the most well-known passage of the Bible in general. And in this parable, we have a number of people. First, we have the traveler. He was on his way back from Jerusalem to Jericho. The road he was on was treacherous, and traveling that, that road alone made him vulnerable. The next group of people we see are the robbers, the bandits. We could characterize them as people who were intentionally trying to hurt or take advantage of him. When these robbers saw this traveler, they saw an easy target. They wanted what he had and didn't mind hurting him to get it. They took his money, 
They left him for dead. They broke several commandments along the way, stealing, coveting, murdering. At least that was their intent. They effectively hated their neighbor. The next two people we see in this passage are the priest and the Levite. Unlike the robbers who were malicious, right? The priest and Levite could be categorized as being callous or uncaring. They both saw someone in need. It, it mentions it right in the passage that they, they saw him and then acted. So they saw him in need, but they didn't feel compelled to help. I mean, why should they feel compelled to help? Who knows how that person got into that situation, right? Why was the traveler so reckless to travel this dangerous road by himself? He practically invited these robbers to do this. Now, some may say I've read in some commentaries and I've, I've heard other people maybe wonder, well, maybe the priest and the Levite, maybe they were concerned about becoming ceremonially unclean because perhaps this man was dead or, or something like that. Well, first, they're going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, so they're probably finished with the work that they were doing and serving at the temple. But additionally, that's beside the point. The whole point is they saw someone who was in need, and they could have helped. And they didn't. They chose not to. If we're honest, we can find ourselves in this position more times than we would like to admit. For us, we might think the requirement from God is to do no harm to neighbor or maybe to be polite to our neighbors. The message of this parable is robbing and attacking someone is not loving neighbor. That is clear. At the same time, indifference in the face of the needs of someone else is also not loving neighbor. James rightly says that we sin when we do not do the things that we ought to do. Our call is not to be nice and polite to our neighbor simply. But our call is to genuinely and sacrificially love them. We see tension building in the parable. Who, if anyone, is going to give aid to this man? He's clearly in need. He's half dead. He's still alive. There is still hope. Unfortunately, these religious leaders who should have brought joy, of course they're going to do the right thing. They pass him by. Who is going to step in to help? Some of the commentators said that Jesus' listeners may have expected a Jewish layperson. So the religious leaders didn't do the right thing, but this layperson did, showing that sometimes the religious leaders don't do the right thing, but a good Jew would. Well, that takes us to the Samaritan. The Samaritan was compassionate. To the shame of the Jewish people, 
the hero of the story is not a Jew at all, but a Samaritan. Now, I remember a few weeks ago in Luke 9, 52 through 55, we saw Jesus send his disciples to Samaria to prepare for a visit. The people did not welcome Jesus and did not welcome the disciples because it said Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So in God's mysterious way, as Jesus was heading essentially to the cross to be sacrificed, he made it so that instead of more and more people accepting him and welcoming him, the rejection that he would ultimately see by humanity and even the wrath of God, he was starting to see that more and more. Now the disciples were told to dust their feet off. But instead, the disciples in this passage in Luke 9, 52 through 55, they asked Jesus, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? That, in a nutshell, is how the Jews felt about the Samaritans. The Samaritans had given up their distinctiveness in being sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They intermarried with other people. They worshiped their own way, and now they didn't even want to hear from the Messiah. Their judgment was long overdue, as the judgment for anyone who rejects the Messiah is long overdue. Oh, how the disciples wanted to be a part of doling out that judgment. Instead, Jesus rebuked them. At the same time, the disciples were right that the Samaritans were not following God. That's what makes this parable in our passage today so surprising. The Samaritan came to this place. He was walking on the same road. He saw this traveler in need. And unlike the robbers who saw the man as an easy target to hurt for their gain, or the priest and Levite who saw the man and were unmoved by his needs, the Samaritans saw the man and had compassion. The Samaritan went to the traveler. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine that he had for, on his trip. The Samaritan set the traveler on his own animal, which probably means he walked the rest of the way. He took him to an inn and continued taking care of him. This was not the man's plan as he's on his way down to Jericho. He was personally inconvenienced and also very personally involved. He also put himself at risk for his own harm. This man, a Samaritan, is now walking into town, into a Jewish town, with a half-dead, injured, probably Jewish person. How do you think that plays out? When the Jews already hate the Samaritans, they would have easily assumed that this was the perpetrator. We've got him. 
He did this at great personal risk to himself. Then the next day, he comes to the innkeeper. Now he's continuing to show his face. He doesn't sneak out in the middle of the night. Of the night. He continues to show his face, continuing to expose himself to risk. But he provided additional, he provided funding to take care of the needs and promised he would come back and cover any cost. Showing that it was not going to be upon this injured traveler to pay him back or take care of his own bill. The man didn't think he had done enough just because he got him to safety. He wanted to make sure that the man was back to full health. So though the Samaritans were no longer in covenant with God, and they were not following his law, in this instance, this Samaritan fulfilled exactly what the law would have called for him to do. He showed true neighbor love. Followers of Jesus are not the only people who do right things in the world. In God's providence and in his common grace, he allows even people who do not follow Jesus to reflect God's continued image, showing compassion and care for God's creation. People who don't follow Jesus can still care for their fellow image bearers. And to our shame, sometimes they demonstrate care while we demonstrate indifference. Let's not just dismiss things that unbelievers care about as inherently worldly. I think this is a temptation to see if unbelievers are championing some cause, it's probably not good. But we need to evaluate everything through the lens of God's word. Should I care about this? What does God have to say about this person or this cause? How do I practice radical, gospel-displaying, self-crucifying, God-glorifying, Holy Spirit-empowered neighbor love in this situation? Christians should be the most compassionate people on the planet and by a long shot. But to our shame, we sometimes allow people who don't follow Jesus to be the face of compassion in our time. We continue to see in this passage that Jesus completely shifts the paradigm for this lawyer. The lawyer, though he was wise and understanding in a worldly sense, was blind. He asked the wrong question because he was so worried about testing Jesus and justifying himself. The question isn't, who is my neighbor, but how can I be a good neighbor? That brings us to the next point. Jesus then goes on to commission his disciples to display radical, sacrificial love to all. We see that in the last part of verse 37, where Jesus says, you go and do likewise to the lawyer. I mean, wow, Jesus really put this man, this lawyer, in his place. And there is something that 
that we feel sometimes when we see someone else kind of getting spoken to, someone else being corrected, and, you know, and we're not in trouble. We kind of see that and say, yeah, yeah, go, you know, go get them. There's something in that in this passage. Oh, man, this man, look at Jesus. Get him, Jesus. This man was so full of pride, it was on full display. He thought he was wise and understanding. But he didn't see that God's command to love went far beyond what he ever expected. His efforts to make the command to love neighbor manageable fell feebly short in light of Jesus' response. He had no place to hide from the holy gaze of our perfect God. If only he knew to call on Jesus to be forgiven and empowered. Now, what about us? Do we see the magnitude of what God has called us to do? This passage here isn't merely meant to show the self-righteous lawyer that he couldn't meet God's holy standard. This parable is supposed to illustrate a critical characteristic of kingdom citizens. What Jesus has called this man to, he is still calling us to do today. I say critical because the call to love neighbor goes hand in hand with the great commandment to love God. Loving God and loving neighbor are non-negotiable. They are foundational and essential. Every other command flows from these commands. We must be eager and zealous to follow this, to love God and to love our neighbor. Now, while we may agree that this is how we are supposed to love, do we actually love like this? Now, before answering, let's think again about the breadth of the application of Jesus' parable. Do we feel a responsibility to sacrificially love as we would ourselves for everyone we come across? Is our heart moved with compassion when presented with needs? And not just move with compassion, but do we feel compelled to give as we would want others to give to us, even if it comes at significant cost or time and or great personal risk? Do we do that without precondition, knowing that the actions of the person leading up to their current predicament does it negate my responsibility to show genuine neighbor love? These are questions that flow right from today's passage. Now, you may be tempted to go through a highlight reel in your head of how you have faithful, faithfully displayed this sort of love. Those examples are good. If you have been born again, there should be many examples of you loving neighbor as yourself. Not just in the past, but in the present and many, many more in the future as well. The question is, does that fulfill what Jesus has called us to? Think back to the lawyer in this passage. He thought loving neighbor was manageable as long as his neighborhood was small. As long as you restricted it to his cul-de-sac, then maybe, maybe it was doable. 
If our response to this parable is, I already do this, we have completely missed how radical Jesus' command to love is. The extensiveness and comprehensiveness of the command to love neighbor, coupled with the countless opportunities to help people, means that there is an incalculably great sin total for each of us on this command. <laughs> I mean, there's no end to how we should be showing love and care. And we can definitely get caught up on, um, you know, specifics of each individual person, and we should think about that. But we're also really talking about just kind of a posture and orientation. So instead of being self-focused, that we should be looking to the needs of others and considering others more important than ourselves. But like Adam and Eve after they sinned in the garden, our sin today can bring feelings of shame, guilt, and even condemnation. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, they hid and shifted the blame away from themselves. How foolish it was for them to think they could hide from God. As, as God calls out to them, where are you, Adam? He's hiding. How foolish. The lawyer in this passage did something similar, thinking he could achieve righteousness if only God would narrow his gaze to how we treated maybe his family and friends. Brothers and sisters, here is the beauty of the gospel. We are welcomed to come out of the shadows of sin, self-deception, and self-righteousness and into the light of confession, repentance, and God's glorious grace. Jesus secured forgiveness for all who would believe on him. He knew all about our sin. How short we fall of loving neighbor is of no surprise to Jesus. He didn't and still doesn't excuse our sin. No, he dealt with it by taking our punishment for all of those sins upon himself at the cross. Now, placing our faith in Jesus means we have no condemnation to fear. Our sin debt has been paid so we don't have to Avoid God for fear of him asking for collection. So brothers and sisters, let's confess that we haven't loved people the way that God has called us to. God's call to a radical, sacrificial neighbor love is not a call to justify ourselves or try to excuse our behavior. Instead, it is a call to Holy Spirit-fueled action. It is us asking God for his help to orient ourselves to the needs of others, to have compassion. Now, there are some barriers. There are some additional barriers that can prevent us or hinder us in loving others well. One of those barriers is tribalism. Tribalism is a strong loyalty to one's own tribe or social group. Now, what does that have to do with loving neighbor? Well, Jesus purposefully made the hero of the parable a Samaritan. He 
he did that per he could have just said anyone and the story would have kind of been the same maybe but no him saying it was a samaritan does something to kind of shock the listeners and we also see this lawyer after that parable would not even call out the samaritan by name as the hero Instead, choosing rather to say the one who showed mercy. Tribalism makes us feel that people outside of our group are outside of our area of concern. Even if they had a need, we would feel no compassion nor any responsibility to help. Simply put, tribalism dims our compassion for our neighbor. That is precisely what the lawyer was trying to establish during his talk with Jesus. The lawyer essentially said, just tell me who's part of my tribe, and that's who I have to love. The influence of the world is another barrier, worldliness, but particularly through media. I think of Romans 12, 1 through 2 which calls us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. The media is trying to fit us into the mold of the world. On every issue, media attempts to define the terms of the conversation and to try to shape our feelings about whatever it is. Brothers and sisters, it is not a question of whether or not we will be influenced but rather what are we doing to renew our minds in the combat against the world's insidious influence? It's a call to be on guard. Other than the Bible and God's people, everything in and around us tells us that, the, that only some people merit our love and care. This is the message of the world. And it's to our shame the message that we hear even from our own heart at times. I'm convinced that most of the stuff I know is wrong unless I've got scripture to back up my position. We should be doing the same sort of, we should be skeptical. We should be suspicious of the things we think, <laughs> of the things we hear, of the things that we have an inclination to love. We should be probing. We should be probing ourselves. We should be probing each other. I think of Hebrews, which says, uh, let's take the opportunity to stir each other up to love and good deeds. And the stir there kind of gives, um, gives this picture of like pepper in your eye. Like let's agitate each other in a way. Let's shake it up to love and good deeds, and all the more as the day is approaching. We need this. We need to challenge our assumptions, whatever they are, to make sure that we are, in fact, loving the right things. And it is a grace for someone to challenge you, to say, brother, sister, you, this is not loving what you're doing. That's not loving. Let's first 
take it and look and see, is there anything here before I just dismiss this out of hand, before I try to justify myself about, well, you don't understand my intentions. Let's not let intentions keep us from loving. Another big barrier is selfishness. If we're honest, we struggle showing compassion to others. At least I know I do. If we're honest, loving anyone with genuine love is hard. If you've got, a, whether it's a spouse or a parent or a friend, even people who you really, really want to love, it's hard to do it. And it's not hard because we are unaware of how to love others like ourselves. It's hard precisely because we know how much we care for ourselves. We are intimately aware of how to cater to ourselves. We know just how we like everything we like. Even if you don't have a big preference, that is a preference. Even if we're feeling down, we do the things that will bring us the most satisfaction. We never forget to do that. It may look different for different people, but the root of almost everything we do comes back to doing things to increase our joy, even when it is to someone else's benefit. So we're never going to sacrifice haphazardly. It has to be worth it if you're going to sacrifice. Now let's take a look at a passage a few chapters back in Luke chapter 6. In this passage, Jesus will help to give us some motivation in loving this way. We'll look at Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. This is Jesus talking. He says, but I say to you who hear. Once again, this is hearing. This is just like those who see. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This passage here in Luke 6, I think, really helps to kind of cut through some of those barriers to genuine sacrificial neighbor love. 
Jesus says even our enemies, those who hurt us, those who beg of us, are to be treated as we would want to be treated ourselves. Why should I sacrifice for those who've hurt me? We sacrifice for a benefit. Jesus knows this is difficult, so he makes clear that this isn't merely charity. This is to be done because of a twofold and really a, a onefold outcome. One is a great reward. Contrast the result of normal, worldly, tribal love. Doing good in this passage, doing good to those who do good to you, is of what eternal benefit? None. Loving those who love you, giving to those who give to you, is just what the world does. You've already gotten what you wanted. You, you got back exactly. You didn't risk anything. It was fine. You knew you would get it back. There was no sacrifice. Now, contrast that. Loving like God calls us to love, like loving enemies, is of eternal benefit. There is a great reward. We are called sons of the Most High when we're doing this. Not because we've earned it, because, but because it reflects God's work in our hearts. We are being holy as he is holy. You remember that passage in Leviticus? He just kept saying, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Saying, this is who I am. This is who you are to be. It's the same sort of thing in this passage in Luke. Loving like this reflects God's character, for he's kind to the ungrateful and evil. Being merciful gives the world a clear picture of God's merciful character. The sacrifice and risk inherent in loving others, particularly those who can't help themselves, or those who are from another tribe, it's not a bug. It's a feature. It's like this on purpose. This is the point. So when dealing with family, family who may be taking you for granted, I don't know if you've ever felt taken for granted. I'm sure you have felt that way at times. Continue to show genuine neighbor love. Why? For God is kind to the ungrateful. Won't that help to put a little wind in yourselves to think about how kind God does to God, how kind God is to ungrateful people, people like us? When dealing with people who have hurt you, continue to show genuine neighbor love, for God is kind to the evil, which he's been to us. He sent his son when we were yet his enemies. And even now, he could just wipe out everyone anytime anyone sins, but he is so kind, being patient, not wanting anyone to perish. When being asked for monetary help, provide resources as a gift instead of as a loan, for God is merciful. Make no mistake, loving this way is difficult. But keeping our reward and God's glory in mind will help us to persevere even as we fall short. We need God's help to soften our hearts and to increase our sensitivity. 
We need God's help to have eyes to see the needs of others around us and to consider others better than ourselves. Loving this way requires much dependence on God. We should be constantly praying, God help me to love what and who you love. God help me to be oriented to the needs of others instead of focusing merely on my own needs. And we know that with God's power, he helps us. So we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works within us, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It is God who prepared good works for us beforehand that we should walk in them. So it is a difficult road in trying to love sacrificially as God has called us to, but it is a road with joy, knowing that at the end of the road, we see our Savior face to face and will hear those precious words, well done, my good and faithful servant. The beauty of this command to love is we have a lot of opportunities to practice. I mentioned family members. We also have church family <clears throat> weeping and rejoicing with our brothers and sisters, actively looking for ways to show genuine, sturdy, sacrificial love. There are so many needs in the congregation, so many hurts, but also so many times of rejoicing. And we need each other in that, to share in that, to encourage us along. The same thing with friends, associates, strangers, near or far. Um, with technology that we have now, the scope of what we see and what we can see, the kind of needs that come before our eyes is really immense. And we should just be asking God as we see, as we always do, we see something terrible in the news. We ask God, God, help me. Help me to have compassion. Help me to love the right way. Help me to pray for these people involved. Help me to think about what I would want someone else to do in my situation. Even if I can't make the situation better, just, just think about a, a child who just hurt themselves. Giving them a Band-Aid doesn't make the hurt go away, really. That's not really, that's not really the point of Band-Aids. I don't know if you know that. Kids, I don't know if you know that. Band-Aids don't necessarily just make the pain go away, but the care and attention and empathy shown by, oh, what, oh, you hurt your knee? Oh, man, that hurt. Would you like a Band-Aid? Would you like some water? Is there anything I can do to help? That lightens us. That helps us so that I don't feel quite as bad, and we need that. So this is for any person that we come across, anyone in need, local or abroad, even if they're an enemy, even if they're, you know, uh, from Russia or some terrorist or something like that, we should be thinking about loving them as neighbors. And a part of that obviously would be that they would become Christians, that they would see Jesus and turn away from their rebellion. All the laws are summed up in these two commands to love God and love neighbor. 
looking to live our lives through that prism simplifies things and guides us to have a Christ-like response every time. Uh, brothers and sisters, over the last few months, I have been uh, meditating on this passage. Uh, just so many things happening in our society. Um, and I have seen bit by bit, and it is slow, but I have seen God's work. I've seen him do a work in my selfish heart. Um, the heart that wants to be defensive and to try to justify my actions when I'm called out on my selfishness. Just by simply asking, how would I want to be treated in this situation? It provides amazing clarity and discernment on what it is that we should be doing. We are in the midst of a crazy world going its own destructive way. And neighbor love is a God-ordained way to show our Holy Spirit-fueled peculiarity. I'll leave you with Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to have hearts of compassion. Lord, let our hearts break as we see terrible things happening, as we see people in need. Help us to be compassionate rather than judge. Help us to be others-oriented. Help our church more and more to be that light on a hill, to be a refuge for anyone in need, that they would get a glimpse of your character and that they would glorify you and see that you are the true Savior of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.